Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing pretty good. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know we always like don't know where to go from there after we ask each other how we're doing. How? And- how do yeah. we not know how to? <laughs> I give up. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we'll just get right into it. This <laughs> Thank <week>. you. <laughs> So in the past, we have joked a lot about the fact that we use a lot of the same words to describe the story that we are about to tell you. And I'm sure everybody is just as sick of hearing us say, wow, this is a crazy story. Maybe even just as sick, you know, as we are of actually saying that. So this week, (laughs) I decided to look up a few new words. The story we're about to tell you is absolutely preposterous, bewildering, and abominable. It is an unbelievable story about the long string of events that eventually led to the murder of a 20-year-old man from early Iowa. And before we get into the story this week, we're going to tell you a little about maybe early Iowa, maybe just Iowa in general, in this week's segment of We Googled This City. I appreciate your faith in me that you thought I could come up with some facts about early Iowa, but you were basically (laughs) right on the second part. So early Iowa is located in western Iowa, and as of the 2010 census, had a population of 557 people, making this, I think, the smallest town we've ever talked about in Google this city. Can you think of anything that's been smaller? I don't even remember it being under the thousands. 
ever. No, Mm-mm. no. So it should come as no surprise, as Mandy was basically saying, that that's really my only fact about the town of Early. <laughs> but I did find a ton of fun facts about Iowa. So without further ado, and with no one except Mandy to be able to stop me, I'm going to continue. So Olympian Lolo Jones was born in Iowa and is not only a summer track and field star, but she also joined the winter teams on the U.S. bobsled team as the breaks woman. And Mandy, remember, she was also on Celebrity Big Brother. Yes. Yes. And she came to win. Totally came to win. She was tough (laughs) as nails. (laughs) She didn't win, but she came to win. And I have a lot of respect for her. She was really good. So the famous painting, and I didn't recognize it by the name, even though I should have, um, but there's this painting of this house in this painting, which how many times can one person say that? (laughs) (laughs) A guy named Grant Wood made this. It's called American Gothic. And the word gothic always makes me think of something different. But if you remember it, it's this house with the couple that's standing in front of it with like the, is it a pitchfork? What is it? The thing? Yes. The older couple? Uh So he based this whole painting on this house that he saw when he was traveling through Eldon, Iowa back in 1930. He sees this modest house, but it has these really fancy windows and something about that really stuck with him. So when he got back home, he completes this painting and used the house as a backdrop and became, you know, obviously this really famous painting. The sour couple who were front and center of this painting were actually not a couple at all, but they were based on his sister and his, Mandy, name any <laughs> any profession <laughs> in the world. And let's see if you could just guess it on the first try because it blows my mind. Dentist. Oh my gosh. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Is that what it is? Yes, it's the dentist. <laughs> no freaking way. <laughs> That's so funny. I just like thought dentist because my family, I mean, all of us have been to the dentist like a million times this year already just for regular <laughs> things, but it just feels like someone in my house is always at the dentist. So that was the first thing I thought of. That's so funny. <laughs> that is hilarious. In a million years, I never would have thought you would have gotten that one because it's just so like it blew my mind. And so I was looking at the painting thinking, well, yeah, if you've ever had a bad dentist, like that's the guy you think of. He just looks <laughs> sour and angry I'm so impressed like this has made my entire night wow this I is mean so it cool. made my night too because I usually just don't know or I, get anything right on Google this city I really try <laughs> I try to come in there with some promising information but it's always so fun so Mandy you know we get a lot of reviews doing our little show and the one we hear the most is that our show is the greatest thing since sliced bread <laughs> <laughs> wait what's that Mandy you said you've actually never heard anyone say that that's so weird well it's definitely true. And if someone wanted to say that, we would not fight them. But back to Iowa and Google the city, the origination of the phrase, the greatest thing since sliced bread actually came from Iowa. So back in 1912, there was a gentleman by the name of Frederick Rawwetter, Rowwetter. I'm going to go with Rowwetter. And he was sick and tired of trying to stuff the hand sliced pieces of bread into a toaster. So he decided to invent a device that would take your bread and cut it into equal slices. Genius. Unfortunately, it would not become available for commercial use for 16 more years because the original invention was destroyed in a fire before it could be shown to the world. This is so dumb. Talk about (laughs) your burnt toast. (laughs) I've never been more like irritated with myself. I looked at bread rhymes, bread things. I couldn't come up with anything. That's just where we landed. (laughs) But you got the dentist thing, so it all's well that ends well. Yes, absolutely. I'm I'm impressed with myself and and also you somehow. I don't know. Somehow, I'll take I mean, it. Yeah. I'll take it. It was still early in the evening on December 13th, 2001 when a frightening 911 call came through the Early Iowa Dispatch. 
On the other end was a strangely calm 11-year-old little boy asking for help after his mother had shot an intruder in their home. The boy explained that three men had just broken into the home where he lived with his mom and two siblings and that the men attacked his mom by choking her with a pair of pantyhose. Police and EMTs were dispatched immediately and quickly arrived to a confusing scene. Once officers had cleared the home of any danger, the first story of what had taken place began to emerge. A 20-year-old man named Dustin Weedy was dead on the floor of Tracy Richter's bedroom. He had been shot nine times in what was apparently a home invasion in which Tracy had shot the young man in self-defense. Tracy alleged that she had been preparing a bath for her youngest daughter when she heard her dog barking, followed by noises coming from downstairs, and she initially believed that it was her husband and one of his associates returning home from a business trip, but then she realized that the men that were in her home were actually intruders. Tracy said she quickly shoved her young toddler into a nearby room where her two other children were and told them to lock the door while she allegedly fought for their lives against these strangers. According to Tracy, one of the men grabbed a pair of pantyhose that she had hung over the banister earlier that evening, and he began to choke her with them. Somehow, in a violent struggle, she said she managed to access her gun, which was a 9mm pistol, and shot her attacker to death, causing the other attackers to flee the home. While investigators worked to process the scene and try to find out exactly what happened, Tracy and her kids went to a local hospital to be evaluated. Tracy's throat was swollen and red, and she had a hard time swallowing, but otherwise she was okay, and all she wanted to know was, why me, why my family? Tracy was initially hailed a hero in her local community, and her friends and neighbors rallied behind her and cheered her on for doing what was necessary to save herself and her children. But as it sometimes happens in crime cases, once you scratch the surface, there can be an entirely different story than what it appears to be. In this case, there were several things that were odd about the big picture, starting with the unlikely suspect that lay dead on the floor. As we said earlier, his name was Dustin Weedy, and he was far from being what you would expect from a violent criminal. Dustin Brett Weedy was born on August 1st, 1981, to parents Brett and Ramona Weedy. Dustin was one of three children in the family and had two sisters named Ashley and Brianna. The Weedy family lived a pretty ordinary but very satisfying life filled with love and closeness. From a young age, Dustin exhibited signs of ADHD and ODD, which is known as Oppositional Defiant Disorder. ODD commonly includes symptoms such as depression, defiance, substance abuse, and trouble focusing at school or work. Due to these diagnoses, Dustin began receiving therapy when he was just four years old. By the third grade, he was put on Ritalin, and when he was a teenager, he was put on Prozac. However, as he became a young adult, he was eventually able to wean off all of the psychiatric medications. Dustin's special needs, though, did not make life very easy for him. He had a record of so-called behavioral problems, but they weren't the type of problems that actually caused any trouble, nor did he try to make trouble just for the sake of it. He was mostly a C student in high school, and he was considered to be below average when it came to articulating and expressing his thought processes. His struggles with academia did not stop him from getting involved in his school, and he was part of the student council, played golf, and participated in the Civil Air Patrol. He graduated from Schaller Crestland Community School in 2000 when he was 19 years old. Immediately after high school, Dustin started working and making his own money. He held a job at a Dairy Queen, and he also did construction work at an ethanol plant. He really loved his family and his friends, and he enjoyed music, movies, computers, and playing video games. For the most part, though, Dustin kept to himself. 
He had no criminal background and he wasn't associated with crime. So how did he end up inside Tracy's home, allegedly without her permission? The answer to that question has a very complicated backstory. Not much is known about the early life of Tracy Richter, but there's a lot of information about her from the time she met her first husband to now. In Tracy's own words, she grew up in Chicago where her father was a police officer, and she says her upbringing was sheltered and strict. In 1986, 20-year-old Tracy was working as an x-ray technician in Denver when she met Dr. John Pittman III. John was 32 at the time and in his fourth year of medical school. He was working towards his ultimate goal of becoming a general surgeon, and he was very focused on that goal, but at the same time, he was also drawn to Tracy and her sweet and charming personality. The two of them really hit it off right away. John enjoyed spending time with Tracy, and it wasn't so bad that he thought she was very good-looking as well. It appeared that these two had a lot in common, and John said it made it easy to be around Tracy since there were so many similarities between them. But this early stage of pure bliss and romance didn't really last for long in this situation. The more John hung around Tracy, the more he found her to be what he called quite unsophisticated, and he noticed several red flags in the relationship. After their third date, Tracy wrote a note to John that said, I think I love you. Things were moving way too fast for John, and he wasn't really that into it, but even though there was a little hesitation, he still continued to see Tracy. In late 1986, John went traveling to complete some of his medical training, and during this time, Tracy sent him numerous of these mushy-gushy love letters, and over the course of the time that he was there, John really started to fall in love with Tracy. After dating for more than a year, John finally took Tracy to meet his parents. This was an extremely awkward first visit where Tracy overshared a lot of personal information, which actually made John's mom really uncomfortable. Even though John's parents had some reservations about Tracy, John continued to date and build a relationship with her. But it wasn't long before Tracy's true colors began to show. She was very possessive of John, and she began making up all these different lies that were designed to drive a wedge between him and his parents. In one instance, Tracy told John that his mother wouldn't stop calling her and cursing at her. And even though John knew that his mom was very polite and was a very calm woman who didn't even curse, he still took Tracy's side. Wow. Yeah. So these antics eventually worked and John cut ties with his parents for what ended up being two years. They eventually married in 1988 and Tracy got pregnant with a baby boy soon after. The relationship was rocky at best when Tracy got pregnant. She wasn't excited about the baby at all, according to John, and she was very difficult throughout the entire pregnancy. When Tracy was around seven months pregnant, she found herself at the center of a very embarrassing scandal. In December of 1989, John's parents contacted him and said that someone had gotten access to their credit card and racked up quite a list of charges. Immediately, Tracy jumped in and offered to contact the police herself and help this get sorted out. But her insistence on being a part of the investigation is actually what turned the attention towards her as a suspect. That's so weird. Like, what business do you have getting involved in that with the police whatsoever? Ever. Right. That makes no sense. No, not at all. So John's parents started to question Tracy's odd behavior, and they wondered if she actually had something to do with this credit card fraud. Investigators also started looking into it, and in the meantime, in February of 1990, Tracy gave birth to she and John's son, Bert. 
The birth of Bert Pittman was really a joyous time for John, but Tracy didn't share the same delight in motherhood. By April, investigators had pieced together enough evidence that it was, in fact, Tracy who had stolen her in-law's credit card information and charged nearly $15,000, which she mostly used to furnish the new condo that she and John lived in. That's just so crazy. You have to know you're going to get caught when they're like, uh, it was to a furniture store and your wife has shown up with like a new right. chaise lounge. I've never yeah. known how to say that word, <laughs> but I went with it. So of course, when Tracy was confronted with this information, she flipped a switch and became belligerent and just flew into a rage. In the end, John's parents chose not to press charges, but the relationship between them and Tracy was forever soured. It was around this time that John really started to see some of Tracy's negative qualities and this pattern of behavior that was starting to take shape. When it came time for Tracy to return to work and find a childcare provider for Bert, she seemed to be having a really hard time finding one that she actually felt comfortable with. John recalls that Tracy would just come home and say that she needed to find a new daycare or babysitter because the one that they had at the time wasn't doing certain things they needed to do, like changing their son's diaper and just taking care of his general needs as an infant. After several changes in childcare, John began to question whether or not Tracy was being honest with her accusations that it was the providers who weren't taking care of their son. It became super obvious to John that Tracy was playing some kind of sick mind game. It was actually Tracy who was neglecting their child and not changing his diapers, but then she would accuse his babysitters of being the ones to do it, which is just mind-blowing. Like, where do you even come up with an idea to do that? Well, Ever. it's just going out of your way to do that doesn't make any sense. If nobody is even suspecting you are doing anything, why would you just randomly just say that about all these complete strangers? Like, oh, we have to get a new babysitter because this lady is, you know, doesn't change his diapers or doesn't feed him or right. whatever the case may be. Why would you just make that up? You know, that's just so weird to me that you would just lie about something like that about another person, like that you don't even really know or anything. It's just crazy. Can ruin their job, can ruin their reputation, all of that. I wonder if it's just to make her look better, like she's the only one that can do the right thing and, you know, saying these things about the other people, like it's not her, it's obviously these other people and look at how great she is. So I don't know. But John had personally witnessed some of Tracy's really unstable behaviors. There was one night when Bert was still a very young infant that Tracy was trying to breastfeed the baby, but breastfeeding didn't really come very easily to Tracy. On this particular night, John awoke to the sounds of Tracy screaming at their son to suck, and when he entered the room where Tracy was attempting to nurse the baby, he instead saw Tracy shaking him. He asked her what she was doing, and she stopped. A few days later, Tracy agreed to start bottle feeding the baby. I can't imagine what this is like for John to see all this stuff and now you have a baby with this woman and you're like, what is happening? Like, what, what is, nobody's safe. You know, that would just be terrifying with your right. little baby. So according to John, it was during this period where their son was entering toddlerhood that Tracy really started to crack and become more and more unstable. And we're going to get right back into this story after one quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. The day you become a parent is one of the greatest and scariest days of your life. You've just been given this person you love with your whole heart and you would do anything to protect. So why is it so hard for us to put a trust or will together to protect them even after we're gone? Trustandwill.com makes it effortless to gain peace of mind by protecting your assets and family in a time when they would need it the most. 
If you aren't sure where to start, that's okay, neither was I. But after going through the Trust and Will website, I was able to answer simple questions about what I was looking to have in place. And Trust and Will helped me decide to get a trust in place. The Trust and Will site makes it easy to go through each step and make sure I have everything in place that I could possibly want. I also love that since my husband and I have different wishes in certain healthcare situations for ourselves, we were able to specify what we want and no one would ever have to guess on our behalf. Trust and Will makes it easy and simple to put a plan in place for your family in the future. Plus, it takes just 15 minutes to finish an online will or trust starting at $69 plus free printing and shipping of your documents in beautiful folders to keep your documents safe. All wills and trusts include power of attorney and important health documents. Visit trustandwill.com slash momsmurder to automatically receive 10% off your purchase of a trust or will-based estate plan. Again, visit trustandwill.com slash momsmurder to automatically receive 10% off your purchase of a trust or will-based estate plan. By the age of 40, which is getting dangerously close for me, nearly half of women report having thinning hair. We hear about men and hair loss, but since women don't talk about it as much, it's easy to feel like you're alone in dealing with it. I've joked on the show that I have really this super thin hair, and it's something that I've wanted to change, so I'm excited we've partnered with Nutrafol. Nutrafol is formulated with potent botanicals to help grow and strengthen your hair, plus it's physician-formulated and 100% drug-free. I've been using it for over a month now, and I'm excited to be seeing some changes. Even if you aren't experiencing thinning hair, Nutrafol can help you grow thicker and stronger hair. If you visit Nutrafol.com and take their hair wellness quiz, you can get customized product recommendations that allow you to put the power to grow thicker and stronger hair back into your hands. Having a Nutrafol subscription means I'll receive monthly deliveries, so it's one less thing I have to think about, and it means I'll never miss a dose. Shipping is also free, and you can pause or cancel at any time. 97% of women actually reported more confidence after taking six months of Nutrafol, so I'm excited to see where I am in just a few more months. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and using promo code MOMS to get 20% off. This is their best offer available anywhere, plus free shipping on every order. Get 20% off at Nutrafol.com, promo code MOMS, their best offer anywhere. 20% off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code MOMS, for hair as strong as you are. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we were just getting into the many ways that Tracy was showing her true colors, and it was starting to become a concern for her husband, John. Tracy was no longer the same charming woman that got along great with John and had so much in common with him. Now she was always cranky, spiteful, and argumentative. John said that she was just constantly looking for a fight or an argument with him, and their daily lives as a married couple were pretty miserable because Tracy really just refused to be a happy person. Things came to a boiling point on a summer day in 1991. As Tracy often did, she started a nitpicky argument with John over where he left his shoes in the house. He had been working in the garage and his shoes had gotten pretty dirty and greasy and Tracy lost her mind over this. She was way more angry than anybody should reasonably be over a pair of shoes and John was attempting to de-escalate the situation, but Tracy just continued to get more and more heated. And in the heat of the moment, Tracy blurted out, quote, you're never going to leave this house alive. I'm going to kill you, end quote. And I understand being in an argument with your spouse and being angry, oh, yeah. but I definitely don't think I've ever screamed at my husband that I'm going to kill him. 
No, you whisper that under your breath. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So Tracy disappeared into another room and John gathered his things and headed out the front door. And as he was leaving, he heard the sound of a gunshot behind him. So he ran back inside the condo to find that Tracy had fired this gun, but now had suddenly snapped out of her rage that she was in. And she was crying and he saw that there was a bullet hole in the ceiling and Tracy was just sitting there very apologetic and told John that she just tried to shoot herself, but that she was fine now and she just wanted to go and lay down. John was really scared for himself and for the couple's young son. So he waited for Tracy to fall asleep that night and then he called the police to report this incident. The police treated it as a domestic violence situation, and they gave John the option of letting Tracy stay at home or taking her away for a psychiatric evaluation. John's initial reaction was to have Tracy taken to be evaluated, but after a social worker came to evaluate her at home and found that admitting her was unwarranted, John agreed that she could stay there. Which, that has to be so scary. After you've had this fight and then this whole thing with a gun, I mean... And now you've called the police and a mental health workers even saying she doesn't have to leave the house you'd be like whoops what do you do so a really important thing to remember throughout the story is that we haven't really touched on much is that tracy also had a long history of infidelity and would sometimes be carrying on affairs with two or three different men at the same time tracy would often claim she was going to work but she was really just leaving her house to go meet with her various lovers About a year after the gun incident in 1992, John landed a new job in Chicago, which was Tracy's hometown. The couple sold their home in Denver and prepared to make the move to Illinois. At this time, the family had a lot of pets. And I like your note here, even by Mandy's standards, these are a lot of pets. (laughs) So they had four dogs and three cats. And Tracy told John that she would take care of everything when it came to shipping the pets to Chicago in the move. However, in a bizarre twist, the pets never arrived and Tracy told John that unfortunately, their animals had been mistakenly shipped overseas to a lab and that they were gone. That's very specific. So what does that even mean? (laughs) But I love that it's like, we can't get them back. They went to a lab, but like, you know, they got to a lab and you know, somebody has them and they still can't send them back. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. So the whole thing is just crazy. And so she's saying that they'd allegedly been lost in transit and there's just nothing they can do to get them back, although they did know that they went to a lab and <laughs> where they were. So that's really <laughs> overseas too. Overseas. It was like it was yeah. <laughs> it's a whole thing. So John was of course devastated, but it wasn't until a short while later that he started to realize that Tracy had lied about what had happened to the pets, just as she had lied about many things before that. On a trip back to the couple's old neighborhood in Denver, John realized that one of his cats was roaming the neighborhood and was, of course, now astray. When John saw the cat, it was like a light bulb moment. He knew right then that Tracy had never put the pets on a plane at all and that she had possibly just set them free to fend for themselves. The cat he saw roaming the neighborhood had managed to find its way back to where it thought it had a home and had been wandering around ever since. Just insane. When John realized that Tracy had dumped their family pets, something finally clicked with him that his marriage was not okay and that something was very, very wrong with Tracy. He hired a private investigator to look into her, and that's when things really started to come unraveled. It was discovered through the private investigator's investigation that Tracy was involved in as many as four or five different affairs at this time and that she was truly living a double life. 
The private investigator looked into the men that Tracy was associating with and learned that they were really nobodies with no discernible incomes. But yet these guys, along with Tracy, were going out and test driving cars and motorcycles. And it was almost as if they planned on coming into some kind of money really soon. The investigator told John to be very, very cautious because to him, it seemed like Tracy had some kind of evil plan up her sleeve. And he believed that Tracy could potentially be planning for John's death in some way, which is so scary to have this private investigator being like, yeah, I've got all these photos to prove that your wife is doing X, Y, and Z things all day long when you think she's doing whatever you think she's doing. And also I think she is planning on having you murdered. Yeah. That's a lot to take in. Sure. So he warned John not to let Tracy lure him to any places alone. Well, two nights later, Tracy called John and asked him to come home for dinner, and she told him that she was there waiting for him. But little did Tracy know that the private investigator was involved in this, and that P.I. just so happened to be following right behind her in her car at that very moment. So she wasn't home at all, as she just told John that she was, but instead she was on the highway driving the opposite direction from the house. The private investigator urged John not to go to his home and believed that Tracy was setting him up to walk into a contract killing. John did lay low for a few days and he was unharmed, but this was really the straw that broke the camel's back. John knew that it was time to divorce Tracy. The divorce was very messy and very ugly, and it went on for years. In 1993, when Bert was three years old, and while they're still going through this divorce, Tracy brought on these sexual abuse accusations against John, and she was accusing him of abusing their son. So this set off a horrific series of medical examinations on this young child, and some of these were internal examinations, all because of Tracy's claims. She actually coached her toddler son on what to say to the Child Protective Service investigators and to the police, and she taught him to lie about his father hurting him. Thankfully, the doctors and police found no evidence that John had ever harmed his son in any way, and he even passed a polygraph test related to these accusations. But this is just one example of the many ways that Tracy tried to completely ruin John over the course of their divorce. Wow. Out of fear of what Tracy would do if he pressed the custody issue, John decided not to fight Tracy for custody of their son. The divorce wasn't finalized until 1996, and by that time, Tracy had been dating and seeing quite a few men. In 1997, she had a brief fling with an oral surgeon, but he ditched her after she tried to extort $150,000 from him by accusing him of sexual assault. The doctor was eventually exonerated, but Tracy had succeeded in ruining this man. The ordeal cost him his entire dental practice. It was just after that incident that Tracy met a man named Michael Roberts on a Christian dating website. He was from Australia and had been married once before as well. Tracy had been divorced from John for just a few months, and the new relationship started to move very, very quickly. At first, Michael was turned off by Tracy's crass ways, and he let her know that he was a Christian who believed that people should exhibit some level of modesty. Michael hadn't always been a Christian, but about a year before meeting Tracy, he found Christianity and had been living his life as such ever since. He was very vocal about his faith and very committed to spreading the word of God to everyone he encountered. Instead of Tracy admitting that maybe this wasn't the right person for her, she quickly morphed into an entirely different role and played the part of a very wholesome and honorable woman. One day, out of the blue, Tracy decided without any discussion that she was going to travel to Australia to meet Michael for the first time, and that's exactly what she did. 
On Tracy's very first night in Australia, Michael proposed. The next thing anyone knew, the two of them were married. At this time, Tracy and Bert were living in Chicago and spending a lot of time at her parents' house. She was working at the local hospital doing quality assurance while she figured out what field of specialized education she wanted to go into. She had obtained a nursing degree back in 1991, and after her divorce from John, she started taking classes towards a psychology degree. Yikes. So two weeks after they were married, Michael moved to Chicago. I'm very interested in this because of all the 90 Day Fiance that I watch, that he was in Chicago and they got married, and within two weeks, she was he was able to move there. They must have had a visa thing going on before <laughs> that. I'm very, very uh, drawn to this part of the story. So his family was not thrilled about this, and he they thought, you know, he should be a lot more careful. He's moving across the world to be with this woman he barely even knows. And then, in the blink of an eye, Tracy was pregnant with Michael's baby. Wow. So Michael wasn't really happy about the idea of raising a child in Chicago, and he made a huge push for the growing family to move to a more rural area. Specifically, he wanted to move to early Iowa after seeing a report that stated that Iowa was the best state to raise a family in at the time. In Iowa, Michael started a computer business. His career had always been in the IT field, so it was really a fitting business choice. Although Michael doted on Tracy and tried to make her happy, she quickly fell into the same pattern of behaviors that she had displayed in her first marriage with John. Shortly after giving birth to Michael's son, Tracy began having numerous affairs with other men. Within a very short period of time, Tracy became pregnant again with Michael's second child. This time, it was a little girl. So the family needed a bigger home, and in 1999, they enlisted the help of a realtor named Mona Weedy. Mona's first impression of Tracy and Michael was really pleasant. She said they seemed sophisticated and businesslike, calm, and fairly normal. After Mona sold the couple a home, they referred several other clients to her, which also resulted in sales. And throughout these interactions, Mona and her family got close to the Robertses as friends. After a while, Michael offered Mona a job working at his company, and she accepted. It was the year 2000, and Mona was doing secretarial and computer jobs around Michael's office. One day, she confided in Michael that her son, who was 19 years old at the time, named Dustin Weedy, had recently been fired from his job at an ethanol plant and he was in need of a job that provided him with a stable routine. She explained to Michael that Dustin had some special needs and that he needed supportive people in his corner because he'd been picked on quite a lot in the past. Michael, being the loving and very religious man that he was, asked Mona if he could be a mentor of sorts to Dustin. He wanted to become Dustin's friend, taking him to do things like paintballing and also attending church. This turned out to be a great arrangement for Dustin. The first time Michael took him paintballing, Mona said that her son was just bursting with excitement and he repeatedly asked her when he was going to get to go play paintball again with Michael. Although it was usually just Michael and Dustin who would go paintballing, there was at least one time that Tracy and Bert did join them. Initially to Mona, things seemed amazing. She was impressed by the Roberts family and how perfect their lives really seemed. But the more the two families spent time together, the more red flags Mona noticed. At some point, one of Mona's daughters began babysitting the young children in the Roberts home, which were Bert and the two children that Tracy had with Michael. One example of a situation that raised some questions for Mona was that one night when her daughter was babysitting, she called to say that there was no food in the house. Evidently, Tracy typically kept her three kids, 
who uh, the youngest was just a year old at this time, corralled behind a three-foot-high baby gate and kept them in one area of the home. And the babysitter couldn't find anything to feed them when they started saying they were hungry. She told Mona that she had just given Bert juice in a bowl because there were no cups to be found. But there were other clear signs of neglect on Tracy's part. In another instance, Tracy asked Mona to take her to see a house she was interested in, and as they were backing out of the driveway, Mona realized that Tracy's youngest child was not in the car. Tracy had actually left the baby strapped in her car seat inside the house. Whoa! And just like pieced out and just left the baby in the car seat? That's crazy. Yeah. So then when they arrived at the property for Tracy to see, she left this baby in the car, even though Mona told her it was okay to bring the baby inside while they looked around. You'd think she would be on her best behavior after just attempting to leave her child inside the house in the <laughs> car seat that she'd be like, I should get this one and bring it in with me. Yeah. Crazy. Mona got the impression that Tracy was a very absent-minded mother who didn't really seem to care at all about the welfare of her baby. The more time Mona spent with Tracy, the more she learned just how unstable she actually was. She frequently went on heated rants about not having any money, and it was clear that her relationship with Michael was really in shambles. One afternoon, Tracy came bursting into the office while Mona was there. She was extremely upset because she had just found out that Michael was trying to take a $75,000 loan against their house without discussing it with Tracy. In just an instant, Tracy went to her dark side and became totally violent. She started kicking holes in the walls of the business until Michael had to actually restrain her and force her to leave. Tracy went home, took a bubble bath, and then called the police to report the altercation she had with her husband. As Tracy always did, she made herself out to be the victim, and Michael ended up being arrested for domestic violence. But Tracy also concocted an even bigger lie to the police— and it was a lie that would eventually lead to the death of Dustin Weedy. Tracy told police that Michael had not only abused her, but also her son, Bert. And once again, she already spent time coaching Bert on what to tell the police. So the child gave a statement alleging that he had been abused by his stepfather. What Tracy didn't realize is that by Iowa law, Child Protective Services has to notify the biological parents when a report is made regarding their child. So Bert's father, John Pittman, was notified. In a very twisted effort to save her own back, Tracy had her son tell another lie. Bert told CPS that when he said he was being abused by his stepfather, what he really meant was that he was being abused by his father, who was John. Oh my gosh. So this is just so many levels of just not okay with Tracy getting her child to lie, you know, to these officials and just the types of things even to tell him to lie about. Like, why would you even... That just breaks my heart for for a kid to think about his mom saying, I want you to tell these yeah. people that your dad hurt you. Like that's that's just awful, yeah. like the worst kind of behavior. So now John, who has already been accused of sexual abuse twice by Tracy, was now being accused of it once again. He didn't fight Tracy for custody in the beginning of their divorce, as we said before, but this new accusation was really just too much for him to take, and he filed for a change in custody in late 2000. In early 2001, things were quickly unraveling for Tracy. She was at risk of losing custody of Bert and also losing the child support check that she was collecting from John. Her plan to frame John as an abuser had failed once again, and it was looking like there was really nothing she could do to stop the court from siding with John and sending Bert to live with him and his new wife, because you have to take into account all these things that Tracy has been right. 
in trouble for, you know, recently, she knows that he is going to win custody of this child based on all the previous history. But of course, we're talking about Tracy here. So, you know, she is not going to just roll over that easily. Instead, she conceived an absolutely unbelievable plan to keep John from getting custody of their son, Bert. At the time, Bert was 11 years old. Tracy's plan was so twisted that it's really hard to imagine how anyone would even come up with this idea. Even though she was terrible at framing people, Tracy decided to try it just one more time. Only this time she wasn't going to try and frame John for abuse. She was going to try and frame him for murder. If her plan worked, John would be whisked off to prison for the rest of his life while she lived out her days with Bert and she would never have to deal with John again. Of course, she still had to decide on a victim, and once again, she made it about herself. Tracy's plan involved setting up a scenario that made it look as though her ex-husband, John, hired someone to kill her, but that wasn't just far enough. She wanted to use an actual pawn in her plot, so she was looking for someone who she could claim showed up to her home with the intent to kill her under John's orders. Wow. Right. So that's when, for some very strange reason, she thought of 20-year-old Dustin Weedy. Choosing him as her fake attacker was likely an idea she arrived at because of Dustin's ability to be easily manipulated. It was early December of 2001 when Tracy was ready to execute her plan. Michael was going out of town on a business trip in a few days, and Tracy had already started to lay the foundation for this fateful night. She told Mona that she'd like Dustin to come over to her house one night to help make some photocopies, which of course wasn't really a strange request since Dustin had been hanging around the family and helping out frequently. On December 13th, 2001, Dustin drove to the Roberts home and parked his car in the driveway and made his way up to the door. Once he was inside, Tracy somehow convinced or forced Dustin to write several entries in a pink spiral notebook to make it appear as though the notebook was Dustin's journal and that he had been writing in this all along about John instructing him to murder Tracy and her son, Bert. In the entries, Dustin referred to John by his initials, JP, and referred to Tracy the same way with TR. After Dustin wrote in the journal, Tracy lured him into her bedroom and shot him nine times with two different weapons. She then planted the notebook inside of his car and staged the scene for her grand finale of getting back at her ex-husband. All that was left to do was give a convincing account of completely contrived events to the police and hope that nothing went wrong. But before she could set the next steps in motion, she had to coach Bert about what to say when he dialed 911, and really every day after that for the rest of his life. Without him backing up her story, the whole thing would fall apart. As we know, Tracy was a master manipulator, and she told her son to lie about terrible things multiple times over the course of his life, so this would have been nothing new for Bert. In preparation for the police to arrive, Tracy wrapped a pair of pantyhose around her neck and strangled herself just enough to leave marks. When everything was staged, Tracy instructed Bert to dial 911. When the police arrived, as I said, they arrived to a really troubling scene. Tracy, who was 35 years old at the time, alleged that she had been home with her children, giving the youngest a bath while the other two played in a nearby room when two men broke in. So the story actually changes a few times. I know we said three in the beginning. At this point in the story, she is telling the police that there was two men and then she says three. And then at some point she says, no, it was actually two. We know there was not a second or third man in the story. So it's not, it doesn't really matter. That's not lining up. So Tracy was, her story changed so many times. 
So she told the story in elaborate detail, which is really common when somebody is actually lying, but they're trying to be convincing. So Tracy said that at first she believed the person coming in the door was her husband, Michael, as she was expecting him back from a business trip that evening. But then she said she realized it wasn't Michael and that there were two men in her home who were intent on doing her harm. She said that's when she shoved the baby into the room with Bert and her other son just in time for the attacker to make his way upstairs and begin assaulting her. Tracy laid out a picture of a brutal attack in which Dustin allegedly jumped on her back, pulled her hair, and choked her with this pair of pantyhose that he found hanging over Tracy's banister. Tracy said that she had to fight for her life and for the life of her children, and she managed to access her gun safe and retrieve her weapons. She claimed that she first shot Dustin while he was still attacking her by holding the gun over her shoulder and firing on him and then turning around to face him and firing at him from the front. The other intruders, she said, ran from the home when she started firing. Investigators noticed blood splatter on the walls of the home and on some furniture. They really didn't think her story made a lot of sense, but it was a plausible story, according to the police. But that doesn't mean that everyone involved in the case agreed. And we're going to get right back into what happened next after one last break for a word from this week's sponsors. Rapid Lash Eyelash Enhancing Serum is a safe, clinically proven, and award-winning lash enhancing serum that cosmetically boosts the look of your lashes in as little as four to six weeks. Rapid Lash is tried and true and has over 6 million units sold worldwide. Plus, makeup artists, celebrities, consumers, and beauty editors all trust it as well. Rapid Lash is super easy to apply, and you just need to apply it once at night on clean, dry skin to the base of your lash line. Makeup can even be applied after the serum dries in just a few minutes. The formula is ophthalmologist and dermatologist tested, safe for contact lens wearers, plus it's paraben and fragrance free and not tested on animals. It can even be used with lash extensions. If you struggle with thinning lashes that are due to age, stress, hormonal shifts, medications, even damage from false lashes, lash extensions, or environmental factors, Rapid Lash is ideal for you. I have naturally thin eyelashes, some of which is from age and a lot of which is from stress. So I love that there's a product out there that I can actually use and I've been super impressed so far. I've been seeing a big improvement in my lashes just using it for a few months now. So whether it's for a special occasion or you just want the look of youthful lashes every day, Rapid Lash is available at CVS, Ulta Beauty, Target and Walgreens.com for $49.95. Or visit rapidlash.com and use the code RAPID30 to save 30% off site-wide. And learn about Rapid Lash's other products like Rapid Brow, Rapid Shield, Rapid Eye, Rapid Hair, and Rapid Renew. That's rapidlash.com and use the code RAPID30 to save 30%. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery, 
delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. And now back to the episode. So before we took the break, investigators had just arrived at Tracy's home and found Dustin Weedy dead on the bedroom floor after Tracy said that she had shot him in self-defense. When Mona and Dustin's father and sisters heard about the shooting at Tracy's home and knowing that Dustin was there, they immediately got in the car to go find out exactly what was going on. When they arrived, they learned that Dustin was dead. The Weedy family was shattered in an instant and desperate for answers. Police found this notebook that Tracy had planted in Dustin's car and examined it. It was confirmed that the journal entries were written in Dustin's handwriting, but Mona was insistent that Dustin did not keep a journal or really write much at all. The detectives working the case decided to keep the information about the notebook a secret because they felt like it was such an important clue. Tracy did not like that at all. One detective later said that Tracy was pretty much losing her mind that they hadn't announced the notebook or shared the contents of it with the public. She constantly called the police station asking for updates on the case and trying to find out if police were looking into her at all. In the days immediately following the shooting, Michael came out in support of his wife and even offered a $10,000 reward for information about these unidentified intruders that got away. On December 18, 2001, Tracy and Michael took the kids on what they said was a planned vacation to Australia. Tracy told investigators that they would be gone for several weeks. Can you imagine? This is only five days after this has happened. She's like, I'm leaving the country and we're going to be gone for a while. Like, for the investigators, that has to be like, whoa. Right. Like, what? <laughs> but they're looking at her like a victim, so I guess they're, you know, they can't stop her, but there has to be like, oh my gosh, there's still so much we need to do, and now she's leaving the country. So this gave Tracy ample time to teach Bert the official narrative that she wanted him to go with since she had him all to herself, thousands of miles away from where the shooting happened and where there was an ongoing murder investigation. The family returned on February 12, 2002, so what's that, like two months, and the next time the police made contact with Tracy and Bert, they had nearly an identical story. Fancy that. So much to Tracy's dismay, her ex-husband John Pittman had not been arrested and charged with a crime while she was away in Australia. In fact, the only thing that Tracy arrived home to was more questions from the police. 
imagine how ticked off she was. She leaves the country and she thinks, oh my gosh, this notebook's there. It says that John hired somebody to come kill me and now he's going to be arrested and all my problems are over with. And yet she comes home and it's like, "Mm, we actually have a lot more questions for you. So her husband, Michael, was asked to take a polygraph test to prove that he had nothing to do with any of this. He was asked whether he planned to stage assault on his wife or plotted with anyone to break into his home while he was gone or whether or not he knew who the other two men who broke into the house could have been. He answered no on all questions. In the end, though, Michael failed the polygraph. The test showed that he was 99% deceptive on all relevant questions, but he maintained that he had no idea what went on inside his house that night. At this point, just a few months after the shooting, police were nearly certain that Tracy had set the entire thing up, but they were missing some key elements they needed to take the case to the prosecutor. Investigators were unable to find the definitive evidence they needed, so the case was eventually ruled a justifiable homicide, and the pink notebook was put in an evidence room and kept a secret. Tracy had, at least for the time being, gotten away with murder. Dustin's family was devastated, and of course they knew that Dustin would never assault anyone, and certainly not Tracy, who, you know, he considered a family friend. Dustin even hung out with 11-year-old Bert from time to time, and the two of them liked each other. None of the evidence made any sense together or added up to Tracy's alleged version of events. It was really a slap in the face to the Weedy family that not only had Dustin been murdered, but Tracy added insult to injury by doing things such as appearing on the Montel Williams show, where she told her story that she was a brave mom who did what she had to do to protect her kids. It's really sickening and like, I guess narcissistic, which we see a lot with people that are like this, but it's just, it's, it's infuriating to think that she set this whole thing up and that she knows what she did, but yet she has the wherewithal to go on national television and make herself out to be some kind of hero for doing what she she could have said. No, it would have been so easy to just say, I'd rather not relive this situation instead of going out there and hurting this family even more. Right. So Dustin's father, Brett Weedy was taking his son's death particularly hard. And by late 2002, Mona had taken their two daughters and moved out, leaving Brett alone. And he turned to alcohol to cope. On Thanksgiving day in 2002, just 11 months after Dustin's murder, Brett wrote four letters and left them on his kitchen table for his family before taking his own life at Dustin's gravesite. The Weedy family had just been completely ripped apart. After that, Tracy spent the next nine years trying to manipulate and control the investigation and the entire situation. When the shooting first happened, Michael refused to believe that his wife was capable of cold-blooded murder and they stayed together. But three years later, in 2004, their marriage began to fall apart, largely in part to Tracy's absolutely psychotic behavior, which she had exhibited not only during her relationship with Michael, but also that she had displayed really throughout all of her relationships and throughout her life. From the time the murder took place, Tracy went out of her way to harass everyone in the case. She sent thousands of emails, faxes, and letters to the police and investigators working on the many cases that she was actually involved in because she still has this custody case going on and now she's got this murder case going on in different states. So Tracy was so unhinged that she even had the audacity to harass the Weedy family. In one vengeful email she typed out, she accused Mona of being somehow involved in this alleged plot to set her up. I, I cannot handle this woman. 
There were two bizarre occurrences that happened within the Roberts house that led to Michael finally leaving. In one scenario, Michael agreed to play a weird game of trust with Tracy. He wanted to prove that he trusted her, even though he did not trust her at this time, so that she would not become angry and hurt him. So Tracy told Michael to lay down and let her roll him up tightly in a sheet. Only his head was out of this cocoon, really, was what it looked like, and Tracy used safety pins to secure the fabric so Michael was not able to get out. So things take a weird turn when Tracy simply walked off and left him there for 45 minutes while she went about doing housework. This is the weirdest, like, relationship building game <laughs> I've ever heard of. I've never heard of them doing this in, like, uh, relationship therapy at all. Nobody's in a cocoon with safety pins. But when she returned, she put a plastic bag over Michael's head and poked small holes near his mouth. But he still struggled to get air, even with those little holes. And eventually the adrenaline kicked in and he was able to free himself. It was a terrifying situation for Michael, and he believed that this was Tracy's warning to him, letting him know that she was capable of killing him if she wanted to, and that he better watch his back. And then Tracy actually did make an attempt on Michael's life. One night, the couple was talking, and at this time, Michael believed that Tracy was actively planning his murder. Can you imagine living in a house, being married to somebody, and thinking, they are trying no. to kill me? So on this night, Tracy approached Michael while he was in the garage working. She handed him a glass of wine, and they just sat in the car chatting. Michael was recording this entire encounter because he was working to gather evidence to prove that Tracy was up to no good once again. So within a few minutes of them speaking in the car, Michael becomes really woozy and actually passes out. You can actually hear on the recording that Tracy then gets out of the car, shuts the door, shuts the garage door, and then starts the car. Miraculously, though, Michael awoke just a few minutes later and realized what was happening. He knew then that Tracy had just tried to stage his suicide. When Michael finally had enough and made moves to escape the relationship, Tracy once again turned into a woman scorned. And at this point, Michael's got to know all these accusations she's put up, at least against her ex-husband, and has to be thinking, oh my gosh, what if none of this is right and she's going to do the same thing to me? It'd be terrifying to turn right. on this lady. So of course, she goes on a smear campaign against Michael and told police that now she believed that it wasn't John Pittman who was responsible for the home invasion. It was Michael who had set it all into motion. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine though, the police dealing with this woman? Because they know that she is completely full of it and like that nothing, I mean, I feel like they knew. Four years later, Tracy was living in Nebraska, and out of nowhere, she contacted police to let them know that Michael had broken into her vehicle and planted photos of Dustin Weedy's dead body in there. So, again, she is coming up with these crazy, crazy things that don't even really make any sense. Why would her soon-to-be ex-husband do this? Why would he break into her car and put right. those pictures in there? Like, that doesn't even make any sense. But it's like at the same time she's doing these things, she's also telling on herself. So that's why I don't understand she continuously puts herself in the middle of it, you know, into the spotlight. Mm -hmm. Exactly. When she calls the police again and says, oh, this is what just happened to me. And nothing really happened to her. But like, once again, she's drawing attention to herself. It doesn't make any sense why she's doing this. So Nebraska police, they, you know, they listened to her story and they responded to her call, but then they started investigating her themselves. So this kind of backfired on Tracy. They ended up finding numerous pieces of evidence against Tracy, suggesting that she was guilty of multiple types of fraud, including welfare fraud and possession of a fake passport. 
Tracy was eventually sentenced to three years of probation for the fraud claims, but that was just the start of many more legal troubles that were about to come her way. In 2011, Ben Smith was elected as the new county prosecutor for Sac County, Iowa, where Dustin's murder had taken place 10 years earlier. Ben was young at just 32 years old and had very little experience as a prosecutor. Shortly after he was elected, a police investigator approached him about the strange case involving Tracy and Dustin, and Detective Trent Valletta was urging Ben to take a second look at this case. Ben was really reluctant at first, but the detective continued to kind of pester him about it until Ben agreed to look into it, and it was really like opening Pandora's box for him. As soon as he started learning all the details of the shooting, he became fascinated with the story. One of the first details of the crime scene that stood out to Ben was that Dustin had parked his car in Tracy's driveway. Ben thought that this was strange because if he had gone to Tracy's house that night with the intent to murder her, he wouldn't have parked his car right in her driveway. He believed that this detail was very important and proved that Dustin thought that he was going there for an innocent purpose and that he would be leaving unharmed. The next thing Ben was really interested in was, of course, this pink notebook that was found in Dustin's car with his own handwriting, alleging that he had been sent there to kill Tracy and Bert at the behest of John Pittman. This was really troubling and it didn't make any sense at all. And after reading through the journal, which only had a few entries that were all pertaining to this case and no other entries about anything else, Ben started to doubt Dustin's ability to have actually written this. He already learned that Dustin was considered special needs and that he did not have the intellectual capability to write the type of words and thoughts that were written down inside of this notebook. There was also specific language in the notebook that would have made it impossible for Dustin to have written. In one example, an entry that was supposed to appear as though it had been written years prior stated that, quote, John Pittman hired him to murder Tracy Richter, who he is divorcing, end quote. Now, that doesn't seem like a huge deal, but Ben knew that there was simply no logical explanation for how Dustin would have written that sentence in the present tense, considering that Tracy and John lived thousands of miles away from where Dustin lived at the time of their divorce. Dustin wouldn't have known either of them at the time since Tracy hadn't even moved to Iowa yet or known that she was moving there. Not to mention, Dustin would have just been about 11 years old at the time of John and Tracy's divorce. Another thing Ben noticed from crime scene photos is that Dustin had many items in the trunk of his car that really could have been used as a weapon. He had a bat, he had ropes, but he didn't take any of that inside with him. So if he were to believe Tracy, then Dustin relied on finding a weapon inside the house and settled on using the pantyhose that he found to attack her with, which doesn't make any sense if someone's going there with the intent to hurt someone. They would never take the chance of not having a weapon. And especially whenever his car is filled with things that could be used as weapons, it makes no sense that like pantyhose is what you land on. So at this point, Ben was also convinced of Tracy's guilt, but now his job was to try and prove it. Well, back when the investigation was first going on, when the murder first took place, we mentioned that investigators kept the information about this pink notebook to themselves. Even Tracy wasn't told by police about the existence of this notebook, so if she had nothing to do with writing it, she would never even have a clue that it existed. And I love, love, love that they kept this to themselves because that would have been such an easy thing to have just said, and we found these things, blah, 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 but they knew knew something was not right to keep that to themselves. I think that was just genius. 
So Ben thought that the only way to prove Tracy was behind this sick plot was to prove that she had knowledge of this notebook and or really any of the other contents inside of it. So Ben secretly started talking to Tracy's friends. He contacted her best friend, Mary, and just said that he was taking a look at this case and mentioned that there were details about it that were never mentioned to the public. Mary actually stopped him mid-sentence and said, quote, oh, you mean that stupid notebook? Whoa, (laughs) that is just crazy. So Ben, of course, is blown away. The fact that Tracy had told Mary about the notebook proved that she even knew that it existed when, of course, we said she shouldn't have known. In July of 2011, while Tracy was out shopping, officers finally arrested her and charged her with first-degree murder. She went to trial a few months later in October of 2011. The prosecution had an expert in blood spatter and crime reconstruction to analyze the crime scene photos, and he testified that there was no way the shooting unfolded the way that Tracy claimed it had, and that what happened to Dustin Weedy was a cold-blooded execution and not a self-defense shooting. Bert, who was in his early 20s by this time, was right by his mom's side at trial. He testified with the same story that Tracy had put in his head all those years ago. But after hearing all of the evidence and the absolutely insane story of Tracy's life, the jury ended up rejecting her self-defense claims and finding her guilty of murder in the first degree. Later that year, she was sentenced to life in prison, and she has attempted to appeal this conviction, and her appeals have failed, all of them so far. From behind bars, Tracy continued her evil ways. She somehow managed to create web pages and release allegations against several witnesses in her trial, including both of her ex-husbands. At this time, John Pittman had become a renowned plastic surgeon who was very well known in his area, and he had an amazing booming career. Tracy's smear campaign against him from jail, she's doing this from behind bars, really cost him everything. And in Tracy's eyes, this was her revenge against him for testifying against her. Her ex-husband, Michael, was also the target of her vicious web-based attacks, and he believed that she was still trying to put a hit out on him from behind bars, still to this day. The Weedy family is thankful that Tracy was finally found guilty and put behind bars, but they say the pain of losing Dustin, and as a result, the father of the family has really turned their lives upside down, and of course, it will never be the same. All because of Tracy and her need to feel, I I don't even know how you describe what kind of a person Tracy is. I was trying to think of that while I was researching this case. I don't even have words for her because it's so, there's no way to explain it. Like I, like I just kept asking myself, why would someone do these things? Why would you do any of this? And I never could come up with a good logical reason why anyone would do any of this stuff. It's just craziness. Yeah. And I, is it, uh, I don't remember if it's Keith Morrison or Dennis Murphy from Dateline who uses diabolical. I'm really blanking on that, but that's the word for her. I think she's just, it is. she is just hell bent on hurting people. I think sometimes just to hurt them. And, um, the thing that really upsets me in this story, I mean, all of it, using your kid, the way she's used her kid, manipulating her kid, keeping him away from his father, who was a good guy, but telling him, you know, at some point that's got to get in the kid's head that my dad is a bad guy and how do you recover from that? But taking somebody who was special needs and taking him and he has this friend he's developed and he's trusting this family and he comes over and to have written in that notebook, he trusted her. I mean, you don't know exactly what happened there, but 
who knows, but he trusted that family and to go over there and to know that she could manipulate him and do that to him is just, I don't know. I, I, I can't. It's horrific. It's, it's, yeah, I just can't even process that. Like it, it doesn't, I don't understand how somebody can be that evil. I really just don't understand that. It doesn't make any sense to me, which I think is a good sign that I'm not evil, that I can't understand. (laughs) But it really does blow my mind. I was telling Mandy before, um, that kind of thing, uh, her choosing somebody to be the fall guy that was somebody that had special needs reminds me a lot of the Pamela Hupp case that we talked about. And Dateline did like a whole series on. um, We called it the game night murder, I think. And how Pamela Uh Hupp, you know, ended up trying to pin a murder on on uh, another guy with special needs. It's just so upsetting to to pin it on somebody that really could not have defended themselves. I don't know. It's just the grossest thing you could do. And to hurt the family like that, go on Montel Williams. I have a lot of thoughts on it and I don't want to cry, but it was just I don't it's one I of know. the most this, evil this people. one really yes yeah she absolutely is I know and I uh as part of my research I read a really really awesome true crime book called beautifully cruel by M William Phelps so absolutely recommend that I got a lot of information that just wasn't found anywhere else that was just mind-blowing I was glued to the book from start to finish it was actually one of the only books I ever I think just actually read the entire thing and didn't just skip around and, yeah. you know, look for stuff I needed. But it was so, so, so good and just written so well. And so I definitely highly recommend that book. But I was telling uh, Melissa earlier today that this one, for some reason, this case made me so emotional. And I think it's because, like you said, because Dustin was such a vulnerable person and to right. think that somebody that he trusted that was in his life that was supposed to be, you know, when they first when they first became friends with the Weedy family, it was so that Michael could take Dustin under his wing right. and to, you know, show him kindness. And then this is the, this is how it ended up for him. And that's just terribly, terribly sad. And my heart just broke for Mona yeah. and for Dustin's sisters. They spoke on a documentary thing that we watched and, it's just heartbreaking all around. There was definitely a, something about this case that was aside from the fact that you just want to, I mean, you can't even come up with words for Tracy, but just the loss of Dustin's life is just so tragic. And it is just, it is, it's a very emotional story. So yes, I am glad we did this one and talked about it, but yes, very, very, very sad case. Okay. Melissa, I guess we're going to turn the page (laughs) and do last thing before we go. I mean, we are going to do that. There's just no good segue. I don't think ever you do a really good job with it, but I feel like Ultimately, we're going from murder to, you know, last thing before we go. So this is as good as we can do. (laughs) We did, I guess, a couple weeks ago, a silly little game of true or false facts. And we gave each other some facts and we said if uh, we thought they were true or false. And they were really fun and interesting. So we are going to do round two of is this a true fact or is it a false fact? I'm... Is that is that a name it, of the game? It is. <laughs> After your whole dentist win earlier, I'm just even scared to play this game with you. You're just on a roll tonight. I don't know what to do. It's so it's, okay. There's a very strong theme of teeth, and you're gonna find out. In really? Just okay. I've gone space and other things, so we'll see what happens here. Okay. Do you want to start off? Um. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sure. I'll start. Okay. If you knock your tooth out and put it back in the socket, it will grow roots and save itself. I hope that is not true because that is the freakiest thing I've ever heard of. I'm going to go with false, (laughs) just in hopes. 
I don't need that. It is actually no. true. But from what <laughs> it's true. But from what I looked up, there is like there's like a time limit. Like you have to do it within a certain amount of time or else it just won't grow back correctly. But apparently, yes, you can put a knocked out tooth back back in the socket and it will grow new roots and just get back up in there, I guess. And just get back up in there. <laughs> I would like to see a picture of somebody after they had it done because I feel like maybe it doesn't have the same look after- as it did originally. <laughs> I mean, probably not, but you have I mean, it. it sure you saved some getting- dental. Yeah. You saved yeah. giving an angry dentist. All dentists aren't angry, but you saved you saved <laughs> the man in the American Gothic. Okay, Mandy, here's mine. True or false? And make sure you guys play along. Tell us what you get right. Tell us what you get wrong. We had some uh, people write us. It was really funny. Some people did really, really well, way better than we did. So true or false, your head ages faster than your feet. Your head ages faster yeah. than your feet? You heard I mean, me. No. False. No. Okay. False. That's correct. But isn't that weird? I thought like head and face would age fast. Well, it doesn't say face specifically, but your feet don't grow Wait, hold on. Your head ages faster than your feet. So your feet are young forever? Is that what I'm reading this? I mean, yeah, but like by definition, aging is just the age of something. And since my whole body is hold the on. same age, I'm assuming that there's no nothing is aging faster. I mean, my head isn't like old. Oh, you know feet. what? I did not read this right at all because <laughs> I thought it meant like you get wrinkles and stuff. So I was like, this is shocking information. I think my feet have all... <laughs> Well, yeah, that's definitely a definition of aging. Fine, um, fine. See, I'm not on a roll. I've fallen off a roll and it's rolled over me. So, okay, your next one. Okay, so this is a common one that I just want to know if you um, think it's true or false. And I'm going to tell you if you're right or wrong. So adding salt to a pot of water will make it boil faster. Okay, I'm going to say yes, because every freaking recipe I have um, – even HelloFresh ones, everyone says to add salt to it. And I'm always like, what's the point? I don't understand the point. So let's go true. Well, Melissa, I <gasps> hate to tell you this, but you are wasting your time. Studies actually suggest that putting salt in a pot of boiling water can actually make it take longer to boil. Well, sometimes I'm very slow with cooking, so it probably does help me if it goes slower. <laughs> I need all the time I can get to do the rest of the stuff. Weird. So what's the point? Why do we do that? Yeah. I don't know. I do it because I like salt flavor. So that's, yeah. So, I mean, I'm still going to do it. It's not a big deal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but if you're doing it like just to like make your pot boil faster, it's not going to, it's not going to work. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So uh, true or false, we, uh, no, I'm going to do this one. True or false. If you cry in space, the tears will stick to your face. <laughs> um, no. False. True. Without gravity, what? tears can't detach from your face. Is that not the freakiest thing you've ever heard of? <laughs> That's so crazy. I found a space fact also that was interesting. I didn't include it in my thing, but that fact just reminded me of that. Somebody basically was saying, like, would you, fr- like, if you could be in space without a spacesuit, would you freeze to death? And then I guess the answer is no, what? because even though it's cold, the heat has nowhere to go. Like, <gasps> it would just not leave your body. So, you wouldn't actually free- – you would die anyway of I've- other causes, but you would not freeze to death. Interesting. I definitely told my son that's why they wear space shoot- suits and not because of oxygen. I also don't know if that's true. You know I don't know anything about space. I don't either. <laughs> so- my son's on a huge kick on it now, and so he was asking about planets. Like he can tell you all the planets and different things, and 
um, my husband was like, oh, when, what's the hottest planet? And so you think it's Mercury, right? It's right by the sun. He was like, Venus. And I was like, well, buddy, Mercury's closest to the sun. And then he was like, no, it's Venus. And so I Googled it and he was right, of course, because he gets obsessed <laughs> with these things. But it was just hilarious because I was like, oh, poor buddy. I know more about this than you. <laughs> and that's never the case. All right, Mandy, what's your next one? Okay. Um, female dragonflies fake being dead to stop unwanted male attention. Honestly, I hope that's true because that's a really good idea. <laughs> Nothing I've had to deal with, but I'd like to pretend. It is 100% true. <laughs> that's that's pretty bad. I would fake it to keep my kids from asking me questions. Yeah. Definitely fake <laughs> yes. me to sleep for sure. Okay, Mandy, this is – I have two more that are I think are pretty good. So um, true or false, Google image search was created because Jennifer Lopez wore that you know infamous green Versace dress to the Grammys. Google? Google image search. You know how you can click on the image tab? I'm going to say true. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? There were so yeah. many searches for it. They ended up adding the images feature, which I love the images feature. It's like me one too. Of my favorite things. So thank yeah, you. that makes sense. Well, that makes sense because I feel like the internet was really, I mean, in Google, like search, uh, search engines were really just kind of getting started when that green dress debacle happened. Yeah. So that makes sense that that would be the first thing. So that's kind of why I was kind of trying to think of the time frame, and I was like, yeah, that actually could. Could be. Interesting other fact I found out while seeing that one that uh is it ginger spice? Wait, which is the spice girl with red hair? Was it ginger spice? Did they go that lame with it? It was sporty, baby, yeah, scary. Ginger. Ginger. Mm-hmm. Okay. Ginger actually wore or maybe it was baby. I don't remember now. One of them wore that dress one month before and did not get the same fanfare that Jennifer Lopez did whatsoever. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm gonna have to go look that up now. Good, because I definitely didn't know which one it was. (laughs) Okay, Melissa, I have my last one for you. Okay. Humans have a third row of teeth that would actually grow in when we were about 120 years old if we lived that long. I freaking hate that one too. I hope that's not true, but recently I've seen the uh, x-rays of kit, like a toddler's mouth. Have you seen those? No. Like Google toddler x-ray like teeth x-ray or whatever i'm not doing that do it and you can see like the other set of teeth in their head i i'm gonna say no only because i hope it's not true it is definitely not true (laughs) i can't imagine like at 120 being like i've got new i've got new molars coming in that's just freaking me out i hate it so much okay so my last fact is the Destiny's Child final concert tour was called Destiny Fulfilled and Loving It because it was sponsored by McDonald's. True or false? False. I'm loving it. It's right. It's true. Is that oh, not no. the craziest yes. thing? I hope that one is definitely true and I didn't get tricked by the internet because I was like, no way. No freaking way. But yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that's well, my favorite. I like this little game of... of- questions i feel yeah. like i learn i learn things you know it might actually be fun if we ask people uh this is me talking out loud to you and also if people are listening and we decide to go with this and i don't edit it out we should ask for like a theme and so we could come up with some themed um questions like themed things like pop culture or movies like fun facts from that to give us a yeah. little thing to go on that would be kind of fun so yeah if you're okay with that i'll keep that in and if you guys want to either email us at last thing before we go at gmail.com and give us a theme or tweet us or whatever else. I don't know how other places you can contact us. That'd be great. Let us know if you enjoy this. That'd be fun. 
All right. I think that is it for the week. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. We will see you back next week. Same time, same place, new story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.